in the Myers home, probably like a lot of your homes, we love football. We watched football last night. We'll probably, no, we will watch football today. My son Blaze has a football game this afternoon. We'll be going to after church. I've coached football. My son Peyton played college football this last year. My son Brady is going to play college football next year. We really like football. I love football because I think it is the ultimate team sport. I don't know that could be argued. For me, it is the ultimate team sport. A football game, when you think about it, is, is one game made up of anywhere from 60 to 100 little games called plays. And on each one of those plays, each one of those little games, there is a winner and a loser. And in any one of those plays, nothing, nothing can be accomplished on any given play unless teammates are depending on one another. So the center has to snap the ball well. The, the linemen, the offensive linemen need to protect their quarterback. The quarterback needs to receive the ball. He needs to properly read the defense and he needs to throw a good ball. The receiver needs to run his route correctly and he needs to catch the ball. Once he catches the ball, he needs to run with the ball. So nothing happens on a football play unless your teammates are doing what they need to do. It's why I think that the MVP award is most difficult to discern in the game of football. It's why football is the hardest place for a self-interested, self-centered player to survive. You can survive almost in any other sport, but in football, it's very difficult because it is the ultimate team sport, which is why One of the best things that a coach can say to the individual players on his football team is do your football players, do your, thank you. That almost, this illustration just about failed completely. That's the best advice that is given to an individual player who is part of this team in the game of football. It is, don't worry about what everyone else is doing. You need to do your job. In a sense, that is exactly what Paul has to say to the Ephesians in our text today. Each of these Christians that are in this Ephesian church each of them, for the good of their church, they each needed to do their job. Paul shifts gears. If you were here last week, you're going to see that he shifts from commonality to diversity. He moves from talking about what all the Ephesians had in common to how they were different. He has just emphasized that we are one, and now he emphasizes that we are many. 
There are ways in which as Christians in a church, we are not unique and we are not special. And Paul emphasized that last week. And then there are other ways where we are unique. And this diversity in the church and in a local church and in our local church, it serves unity. Which is what Paul is talking about in the beginning of chapter 4. It is a good thing that we're different. It's a good thing that you and your spouse are different. It is a good thing that your pastors are different. In fact, it is those differences, if understood correctly, are good for unity as a church. So God willing, we'll see that that is what Paul has to talk to us about today. Let's first pray together. Will you Please bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would, through your word and by your spirit, teach us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And if you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find that on page 918. To understand what these verses are generally about, I want to draw your attention to several phrases. If you see and hear these phrases, you're going to know what, at a high level, Paul is talking about here. So look with me and listen to these phrases spread throughout our text. Verse 12, building up the body of Christ. Verse 13, mature Manhood. Verse 15, grow up in every way. Verse 16, makes the body grow. Building up the body of Christ. Mature manhood. Grow up in every way. Makes the body grow. What is the text about? Maturity. Paul's talking about maturity. It is about spiritually Growing up, not physically, but spiritually growing up, growing up as Christians, growing up as a church. Now, how does Christ do this? How does Christ mature Christians or how does Christ mature a church? Well, he doesn't just snap his fingers. We may wish that he did. I wish that I was as mature at 18 as I am now. And I wish that I was as mature now as I will be, God willing, in 20 years. But you and I both know that is not how it works. Maturity for a Christian, for a church, it is a process. And it's a process through which I don't know of any obvious shortcuts. So, how does Christ grow us up as Christians, according to our text today? How does Christ grow us up as a church? Well, one of the answers to that question, and the answer that Paul gives in the text today, is this. Diversity. There are differences among us. 
There are distinctions among us. And this is intentional. It is intentional by God and it is good for our unity and for our maturity. It is our diversity as a church that is good for bringing us together and good for growing us up. So what we have here from Paul is some diversity training. I know a lot of things come to mind for some of you when you hear diversity training. So hopefully this is better than what you state workers are getting. This is some redeemed, okay, some redeemed diversity training. Let's begin in verse 7. Let's hear what Paul has to say here about diversity. If you look at verse 7, you'll see that it begins with the word but, and as you know, just like when you use that word, that, that means that what you're about to read is in contrast with what you just read. So you said this, but... Now I'm going to say this. And what we just read in verses 4 through 6 is Paul saying that, hey, we are one. Okay, we are one family, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one heavenly Father. We are one, he has just said. But now, but now Paul is going to say we are many. We are one church here at Veritas. We are one church, just like that church in Ephesus. We are one church, but we are also many Christians. We are one and we are many. So he's moving from unity to diversity. Verse 7, but... Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This grace here that we have each been given, it is not the grace of chapter 1 for salvation. It's the grace of chapter 2 for service. This is serving grace, not saving grace. Grace. It is how Paul described the gifts God gave him to serve the church. Like if you look back at chapter 2, verse 7, he uses the word grace to describe the gifts that God gave him to serve the church, not his salvation. Verse 7 of chapter 2, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. He did the same thing in verse 2 of that chapter, and he does it in verse 8 of that chapter. Paul says, speaking to Christians, if you're a Christian, hear this. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Here's the point Paul is making in these next few verses. And it's a point that he has made in other letters that he's written. It's the first point. To draw our attention to today. Christ has gifted every Christian for ministry. If you're taking notes, write that down. Christ has gifted every Christian for ministry. And by ministry, which is the word Paul will use in verse 12, that's where I'm getting that word. By ministry, he means selflessly serving 
others for the glory of God and their good. That's what it means to minister. As a Christian, to minister is to selflessly, not self-interested, but to selflessly serve others for God's glory and for their good. That can and should be something that you do formally as you serve within a particular ministry of your church. And that can and should be something you do informally as you serve those that God puts right in front of you. Whether it's your family, whether it's your neighbors, whether it's people that you're sitting next to in church, a part of your church family. We're all called to selflessly serve others for their good and for God's glory. And you might do that formally through a ministry like Tom up here leading worship or, or Greg leading us in the service or the, the, the people who are in working with kids right now or those who greeted you when you came in the door or those who are walking around and making sure that we're safe and secure while we worship. And you do that informally when you're with your family this afternoon and you're with your neighbors this week, and your co-workers, you as a Christian should always be ministering, which means that you're selflessly serving others for God's glory and for their good. Christ has gifted, in verse 7 it says, each one of us. Paul says something very similar in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. In 1 Corinthians 12, 7, he says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 4, 10. As each, same word, focused on an individual, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So, you and I, would be wise to figure out what God has gifted you to do for his church. It would be a good thing, a wise thing for you to do, if you haven't already, to figure out what God, each one of us, has been gifted to serve others, to figure out how God has gifted you to serve his church. When I say that, I am not suggesting that you get online this afternoon and find a spiritual gift test. So let me just say something for a couple minutes here. Those spiritual gift tests, which I would, I would never advocate, they are based, I believe, on a misunderstanding of the Bible. We could talk more about that later if you like. They take various lists of gifts in the New Testament, and there are several, and none of which, those lists are examples, none of them even collectively form an exhaustive list of how God might gift his people to serve one another. But they're based on that premise, and then ask you several questions, and then tell you what your spiritual gift or gifts are, and that really misses the point. So to say it in a different way, God has graciously and uniquely built you and designed you to serve his people. And that is true. 
God has graciously and he has uniquely built you and designed you to serve his people. We have differing personalities among us. We have different experiences among us. We have different opportunities before us. We have different desires, don't we? We have different burdens. We have differing strengths and abilities and weaknesses. And we would be wise to consider all that so that we could, the way he puts it in verse 16, you'll see, is so that we could work properly. So that we could work properly in the body of Christ for his glory and the good of others. So I would encourage you not to oversimplify this by taking uh, an exam that will give you a gift. Rather, think about this. Ask your friends. Ask your family members. Maybe take some tests online that might be helpful for you in figuring out who you are and how God has designed you and how God has built you. Consider what is your personality? How is your personality different from other personalities? What are you naturally good at? What does God's providence look like in your life? What are the experiences that you have had that prepare you to minister uniquely? What opportunities has God put in front of you that maybe he hasn't put in front of someone else? What makes you angry? What breaks your heart? What are your strengths? What comes naturally for you? What are you burdened with? What are you burdened for? What makes you cry? There's all kinds of questions we could ask. But we should know that Christ has gifted every Christian for ministry. And then to demonstrate the grace of God in this, Paul, look with me, takes a little detour to quote an Old Testament passage in verses 8 through 10. He says this, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. In the first part, Paul is quoting Psalm 68, 18. There's just a small change he makes to make a point. Let me read to you Psalm 68, 18. I'm curious if you'll hear the small difference. Psalm 68 says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. A small difference. That psalm is describing a king who has been away. He's won a great battle. And now he's returning to his home city. And he, as he enters his hometown, there is behind him a train of his captives. And he comes home with these spoils of war. 
And in Psalm 68, we're told that he receives gifts among men. Now, Paul is using this passage now to describe Christ, whom he just said is the giver of gifts. And then the slight change that Paul makes, and I would just say addition, is that Christ, when he had descended to the earth and then died for our sin, was resurrected and then ascended to heaven after ascending on high following his victory, Rather than just receiving gifts, Paul says he gave gifts. He gave gifts to men. Typically, the king would do this. He would do both. He would receive gifts, and then he would give gifts. These gifts, here's the point. If a king came home with his army and won this victory while we were sitting at home, and then gave us reward and gifts. They are just that. They are gifts. It's not something we deserve. It's not something that we've earned. These gifts we receive from God, they are not based on our own deserving. They are not based on any victory that we have won. It is by the sheer grace of God that he has gifted every one of us for ministry. That's Paul's point. Now, the second part of our text, it's found in verses 11 through 13, where Paul focuses in now on specific gifts given to the church. And in this case, these specific gifts are men, with the exception of prophets and likely evangelists who have been enabled to equip other Christians by formally teaching the word of God. So let's look now at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Here's Paul's point. I'll give it to you now and we'll see it in the verses to come. It's the second point here, and that is that Christ has gifted some Christians for equipping. And that's the word he'll use, you'll see in verse 12. So put that together so far. Christ has gifted every Christian to serve others, and Christ has gifted some Christians to formally teach others, to equip others the Christians who are serving one another. And why he does this will be made clear. First, let's quickly make sure that we know who Paul is talking about here. Who are these gifts to the church that he rattles off? The first two, apostles and prophets, they go together. They show up three times in this book of Ephesians, and every time... They are linked together here in this and then in chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul wrote, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And then in chapter 3, verse 5, the mystery of Christ has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. 
And now here he links them together again, the apostles and the prophets. These were. The apostles and the prophets were first generation leaders in the church. No more apostles, no more prophets. They were first generation leaders who were the recipients and proclaimers and writers of the word of God. Once God had finished this special revelation, he stopped raising up apostles and prophets. They were, as Paul said in chapter 2, verse 20, foundational. The foundation was laid. He says evangelists in this list. Evangelists were men like Philip. In Acts 21.8, he is called Philip the Evangelist. Men like Philip who were raised up to, it seems, take God's word to places it had not been before. I suspect these people, unlike apostles and prophets, are still around today. And then finally, and we're going to put these two together, shepherds and teachers. And we're putting them together because they are uniquely connected by a Greek word in the text. They are describing tasks of one particular leader. And we know this man as an elder or a pastor. A pastor is functionally a shepherd and a teacher. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd, he tells the elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And then 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders, again, speaking to elders, speaking to pastors, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching, and in teaching. Apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, I said it before, but what do all these people have in common? They are word-centered leaders in the church. They are leaders who have been enabled by God to teach the truth of his word. Here's what they do. Let's move on to verse 12. God has given them to the church, verse 12, to equip the saints. Saints is another word for Christians. To equip the saints for the work of of ministry. Remember that ministry that all of us have been gifted to do for building up, here is his aim, maturity, the body of Christ. So here is diversity growing us up as a church. Christ gifts all of us for ministry and Christ gifts some of us to equip the rest of us by teaching us the word of God. And then verse 13, for how long, this answers the question, 
well, how long does this go on for? How long do we do this? How long do all Christians need to minister to one another? And for how long do teachers need to teach? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, we minister to one another until we die or until Christ returns. None of us would ever be so proud to say that we have reached in this life mature spiritual manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We will one day in our glorified bodies in heaven. But for now, before that state of glory, here we are in a state of grace. And so we minister to one another. We thank God for and listen to the teaching of his word until we die or Christ returns. In light of the second point that that Paul is making regarding these gifts to the church and this teaching, those who proclaim the word of God, something came to mind for me this last week. I wanted to pass it on to you. It's what I did, and I would encourage you to do the same. Thank God for those who have taught you the word of God. I just realized as I'm saying that, honestly, I just realized that, that it sounds like I'm making a plug. For those of you who have appreciated anything I've ever said to come up, that's not at all what I'm doing, but it sounded really bad when I just said that. It's like the application is to come and thank me. That's not what I'm saying, and if you come and do that, it's going to feel weird, so don't. But thank God, thank God for those who have taught you the word of God. Paul describes these these men as gifts. These are gifts that God gives to us to equip us so that we can minister to one another. And so I did that this past week. I just took some time um, and I thought, looking back at my life, and I thanked God for specific teachers. And it was interesting, most of whom I don't personally know. It was weird, but it was true most of whom I don't personally know, but that I'm so thankful for. And I'll just take a minute, but, but I felt like I should publicly thank those teachers that God has given me. And let me say one thing to you before I do that, a very important thing, I think. Today, I could find something in each of these men that I disagree with. And I found myself doing that even in my expression of gratitude. And I didn't like it. It was getting in the way of my thankfulness. But it's true. I could find something in each of these people that I disagree with. Nevertheless, I mean, it's undeniable. They were used powerfully in my life. And I thank God for them. We all misinterpret scripture differently. Don't forget that. We all have blind spots. The best of men are men at best. 
I hope and pray that you are the kind of person in step with the first few verses of this chapter who can hold firm to your convictions, who can be convinced in your own mind and yet still be thankful to those that you have minor and maybe even major disagreements with. So I'm thankful for my mom and dad. Both dead, both in heaven, looking forward to seeing them one day. But they were the first ones to teach me God's word. They were the first ones to show me how important it was to read God's word. How important it was to think about God's word. How important it was to consider the implications of God's word. So they taught me. I'm very thankful for my mom and dad. I'm thankful for Glenn Miller. Glenn Miller was one of my professors. He was also the basketball coach in college, which is probably why I liked him even more. I remember a class he taught on Philippians. And it was the first time that I'd really ever heard exegetical teaching. It was the first time I'd ever heard a teacher just go verse by verse and work through a book of the Bible and help me understand how it all fit together. And Glenn Miller was a a, a man and is a man of great joy. And so he always had this joy about him that I knew and understood was connected to his faith. And he taught me the word of God. And I remember at the end of every class, at the end of every class, he would pray. And at the very end of his prayer, he would say, and now, God, please dismiss us with your joy. In Jesus' name, amen. And he taught me the word of God. I am thankful for Mark Driscoll. I'm thankful for Mark Driscoll. I can still remember reading this book called Postmodern Youth Ministry, which now I would say is a terrible book. (laughs) But I remember reading it, and there were these contributors in the margin. Tony Jones was the author, and Mark Driscoll was a, a contributor. And so if you've ever read one of those books where you have this commentary by other authors, and it shows up in the margin. I'd never heard of Mark Driscoll, and I read this quote. And I read this quote almost 20 years ago, and I remember it like yesterday. And I don't even remember going back to the book and reading again. It is how profound an impact it had on me. And what the quote was was this. Whenever we preach a gospel of felt needs and actualizing our potential, we have stopped preaching the gospel. And when I read that, it it connected to something that I was thinking and feeling and that I was hearing in churches. And I wanted to understand more of that. And he was my introduction to understanding for the first time in my life, truly, the gospel. Understanding that God loved me and accepted me, not because I was a good boy and I was a youth pastor, but that God loved me and accepted me, and so I should be a good boy. And it changed everything for me. Changed the kind of husband I was, the kind of father I was. I am so thankful for Mark Driscoll. Because God used him to teach me that truth. I'm thankful for Douglas Wilson. Man, I'm hitting them all. (laughs) Some of you are thinking, I don't know who these guys are. And some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, these are some controversial figures. I am so thankful for Douglas Wilson because he opened God's words for me and he taught me practically what it meant to be a husband. 
And he taught me what it meant to be a father. And I didn't know what it meant before he took God's word and unfolded it in front of me. And so I'm so thankful for the ministry of Douglas Wilson. I am thankful for John Piper. I'm so thankful for John Piper. Every once in a while, I go back and look at a picture of me with John Piper. (laughs) And I'm tempted to lie and tell people that we're buddies. But we're not. It was just a quick picture at the end of a conference. He has no clue who I am. But I'm thankful for John Piper. Because it was through his expounding of the word of God that I came to understand just how sovereign God is. That God is in absolute and total control of everything. And that God's sovereignty and my joy are as deeply connected as they could possibly be. I'm so thankful for the ministry of John Piper. I'm thankful for Sinclair Ferguson, through whom I've come to understand truly the depth of the grace of God toward me. I'm thankful for Charles Spurgeon, and I'm thankful for the Puritans who surprised me writing two and four hundred years ago, but wrote better than anyone I can find today about what it practically looks like to love Jesus in your life. I hope some of you get surprised the same way. You might just need to go back 400 years and read some Puritans and work through some of the difficult language to get an understanding of what it practically looks like to love Christ in your life. I'm thankful for their ministry. And most recently, I'm thankful for the ministry of Mark Dever, through whom my understanding of what the church truly is has come to fruition through whom I've come to understand what it actually means to be a pastor and a minister of God's word, I'm thankful for the ministry of Mark Dever. These men and so many others are gifts to the church. They have been gifts to me personally. They are among those who have been gifted to unfold and to teach the word of God, and I'm so thankful for them. I would encourage you, I would encourage you to think about who God has used to teach you his word. Because he's used people. He's gifted people. And you're better off because of their ministry to you. Okay, in conclusion, just a few more verses. Verses 14 through 16. And you see that they begin with the words, so that, which means what's coming is some purpose. Like all this, so that. Paul has already made some of his purpose clear. He's gifted each one of us and some of us to grow us up as a church. That is a, the long-term goal. But here in these verses, I would say is a more immediate objective. So this long-term goal ministering to one another, serving one another, teachers teaching us and equipping us, and we do that until Christ returns, and this is for our growth and maturity. But now even more specific, here is an immediate objective. Why has Paul gifted some of us, like those he just listed for equipping, 
to teach us the word of God, here is an immediate objective. He says two things. And first, he says it negatively in verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. And then second, he states it positively in verses 15 and 16. Rather, so don't be that, be this, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If I could, let me summarize those few verses for us. Christ has equipped some Christians for equipping us with the truth of God's word so that we would not be led astray into false doctrine and so that we would be equipped to speak truth to one another in love. So that verse 14, we may not be this. He's given us these teachers so that we would not be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We need to know what the truth of God is so that we know what it is not. So that we can be discerning. Christians need this. Maybe more than ever. I don't know. But Christians need this. We need good teaching. We need to understand the truth of God's word. All of us are inundated, all, most of us are inundated all day with so much information. Information is coming at us like water out of a fire hose. Through conversations we have, through articles we read, through social media posts we're looking through, information and a lot of theology and doctrine is coming at us like water out of a fire hose. And we need to be able to discern what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is not. Parents need this in teaching their children. Oh God, students need this. Many of the schools that you kids are in, if you go to college, many of the colleges that you are in, you need to know what the truth of God's word is. And if you don't know what the truth is on a deeper and deeper and deeper level, I promise you God's word is true. You're going to be like this little ship, no matter how confident you feel in your beliefs. You're going to be like this little ship in the middle of a storm, and it's only, what is he saying? It's only a matter of time before you make shipwreck of your faith. So you can't, kids, you can't just inherit the faith of your parents. You need to make it your own. You can't just repeat the things that your parents say. You need to read it. You need to think about it. You need to study it. 
You need to make it your own. If you don't know what the truth of God's word is, you won't know what it's not. And then verse 15 and 16 again. So here's what we do. Speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. Here's maturity so that it builds itself up in love. Working properly. Understanding. This is the coach saying to the football player, do your job. Working properly. Understanding that you have been given grace to serve Christians in unique ways so that the church will be built up and grow in maturity. And so Christian, you need to do your job. And what specifically? You see it there in verse 15. What specifically does Paul say here? What is the expectation of what we should all be doing? I think this positive application brings the whole text together, doesn't it? Christ has gifted each one of us to serve one another. Christ has gifted some of us to teach the truth of the word of God. And so what have we been equipped to do? Speak the truth in love. So let's close by breaking that down. It's this famous verse, isn't it? Speak the truth in love. It's always good with those well-known verses to slow down. Paul says we should speak. Deeds are good. Words are very important. What we say to one another is very important. We must speak. Proverbs 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. We could go all over Proverbs. We could go all over Psalms. We could go to James and read about the tongue. We could stay right here in Ephesians chapter 4. But we must understand how important it is for us Christians to speak to one another. Your example is a good thing. Serving one another in good deeds is a good thing. But we must open our mouths and speak to each other. Speak what? The truth. Speak, Paul says, the truth. Which is why we're slow to speak. It's why we think before speaking. It's why we consider what it is that we're going to say. Do you... Speak the truth. 
speaking the truth can be a fearful thing. It can make people uncomfortable. It can make you uncomfortable. It can lose the approval and the acceptance that you have from some people you want approval from and acceptance from. It can lead to confrontation. It can feel awkward and uncomfortable, especially if you're not in the habit of doing it. We might be tempted to not say anything. We might be tempted to say something that is not true, that is dishonest. But Paul is calling us, as we minister to one another, to make certain, above all, that we are speaking the truth. And then that last phrase, it's very important, isn't it? In love. Speak the truth in love. What is the tone of your words? Well, it's the truth, you might say. Well, it's the truth. And the problem the person has isn't with the truth, it's with the tone. It's the way you said it. What is your tone when you're speaking the truth to someone? What is your motivation in speaking the truth to someone? Is it love? Where do you struggle? Do you struggle not opening your mouth when you should? Do you struggle opening your mouth and it's not truth that comes out of your mouth? Or do you open your mouth and you speak truth, but it is not in love? I have my struggle. I think the Myers family has their struggle in our home. And I bet all my boys would agree with me. My wife were here, I know she would agree with me. We have no problem speaking. It's a lot of speaking in our home. I don't think we have a problem speaking truth in our home. But my boys know where we struggle. It's speaking the truth in love. It's where I struggle. Two nights ago, this might horrify you, Two nights ago, I was upset with one of my teenagers, and I told them, shut up. <laughs> you really shouldn't laugh at that. I felt instantly ashamed and embarrassed. There were friends over, and the friend, they do that thing where the friends kind of turn and start walking away. It's clear that I'm hot. I've reached like my boiling point. My son kind of shrinks down and walks away. And what am I having to do in the car in front of all these teenagers on the way to a basketball game an hour later? I'm having to apologize. My son was wrong. He was saying some things that he shouldn't be saying. He was doing some things that he shouldn't be doing, and he needed to close his mouth. But the truth that I said to him was certainly not in love. And my motivation in saying that was, was not out of love for him. I was exasperated. I was irritated. I'd had enough, I felt disrespected, I got really angry, and I told him to shut up. I don't ever want to say that to anyone, let alone my son. 
So how are you struggling? Do you open your mouth and say what needs to be said? Or do you cower? Or when you talk, are you more concerned with preserving your image and your relationships and so you don't speak truthfully and you don't speak honestly? Or are you someone who is known for speaking up and who will shoot you with the truth right between the eyes, but your tone is terrible and your motivation is terrible and you're not known as someone who speaks the truth in love? Friends, consider the words you speak. Consider what words you are known for. Let's bring this full circle. Thinking back all the way to verse 1. We've got through verse 1 through verse 16 now. Just think about all of this together. To live a life of infinite value. We must be eager to keep unity between us and those we want our life to be of value to. We have each been uniquely built and designed to do this. Consider then how God has made you and look to serve those around you. Above all, speaking the truth in love. Well, God has united us. That reality we read last week in verses 4 through 6, he has united us. He has brought us together as one family. And as one family, we are many members. We are many believers. We are many Christians here. And we come from different walks of life and the different personalities and experiences and strengths and weaknesses and all of that. But here we are. We're one family, and what unites us is that we have been saved by Jesus. We have been redeemed by him. We have been changed. We have been saved. And so it's no wonder that Christ, before he even was crucified, he put something in place, and he said, do this, church. Do this, my people, my family. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this to remember the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf, on our behalf. Do this to remember his resurrection, his conquering of the grave. When we take communion together, we are remembering what Christ has done and we are celebrating what Christ has done so that we could be brought into unity with God himself and with one another. If you're visiting with us today, you're invited to take communion if you're a baptized believer. If you have turned from your sin and placed your faith in Christ, you've committed yourself to, to him and to his people. You're part of this church or another one that faithfully preaches the same gospel you've heard here today. If that's you, that's what a believer is, then you're welcome to take communion with us. We'll have leaders up front to serve. And we ask that you would come forward and take the bread and the juice and then Return to your seat, and if you'd wait, we'll take it all together as a church family. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in response to your word today, we turn our attention now to the sacrificial death of your son. May you be glorified, God. Glorified as we remember and we proclaim his sacrifice in our place 
so that we could be reconciled to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.